Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy Church. Hey, what a, a lovely weather we are having today. Um, hey, I want to take a second and just welcome back our college students. Um, you guys, a lot of you were gone for Christmas break, and now you're back. The books are open, and you're into it. And I just want you to know how much we love you guys. We are better as a church when you are here with us. We consider it an honor um, and a joy to support you as you try to figure out how to live out your faith on campus in this critical time. Uh, so we love you and are glad that you're here. Godspeed to you as you get started. Listen, if you have any tutoring needs, uh, we're happy to pray for you. All right. So um, we'll, we're glad you're here. Listen, this week uh, we're continuing in our series of sermons that we're calling Knowing God. Knowing God. So we're in the Old Testament book of the Psalms. What we set up last week was this idea that the reason we're in the Psalms is because we are not created just to know some things about God. And a lot of times, right, a lot of times we can come to church, to Bible studies, to other things, and to try and fill up our knowledge about God. But that's not what we were created to know about God for the purpose of knowing God of knowing him, interacting with him, relating to him. And that's what the Psalms do. They just give us this all-in, passionate relationship with God. They teach us how to go to God, how to get help from God. And so that's why we are in the Psalms. And this morning, this morning we're looking into Psalm 16. So if you got your Bible, get over to Psalm 16. This may be the most pivotal one for our series here in January where we're looking into the Psalms. And here's why. In order for us to know God, to know God, first, we got to understand something really deeply true about ourselves. And that is, that is that we all worship some God. We all worship some God. Listen, to be human is to be a worshiper. It is to give our affections, our, our deepest needs for security and comfort and purpose, it's to put those things onto something else. To be human is to be a worshiper. And so what Psalm 16 is going to put front and center is that the decision for each one of us is not whether or not we will worship God. The decision for each one of us is which God will we give our worship to? That, that's what's before us today, okay? And listen, I know just right out of the gate, that can be a little disorienting and maybe even offensive depending on your background. Listen, if you just came today, you're not a Christian, maybe you came with a friend, uh, with a classmate, uh, somebody else, and you're like, um, I've only been in here a few minutes. It was weird when y'all were singing because I've never been around that before or whatever. And now you're telling me that I'm a worshiper. And I know it can be offensive because I'm telling you that you're in a game that you didn't even really agree to be playing. So here's what I want to say. I want to tell you that by the end of this, the fact that you're a worshiper is actually going to be really good news. And so I got to ask you to hang with us from now until the end of this sermon and just kind of hear us out, all right? And just have some grace as you, as you do that. And then if you are a Christian, this could also be 
it could be pretty um, offensive for you too, because you maybe came in here and you're like, of course, man, I worship the one true God. And the problem is, as we walk through today, what you might find is that what you thought you were worshiping is not what you are actually worshiping. You thought you were worshiping the one true God, but maybe you were going through some motions and actually giving your affections, obedience, trust, love to something else. And so I gotta ask you to put your pride down and be willing to engage the word of God this morning. This is for all of us, y'all. This has worked me over this week, uh, and I am really, really excited to finally, finally give this to you. Listen, my proposition for you today is that I believe most of our problems and our frustrations in our lives are the direct result of worshiping counterfeit gods. That underneath the surface of things like conflict, like confusion about life's purpose, money problems, every single one of those is actually first a worship problem where we've taken something good that God has given us. Often it is a good thing God has given us and we have made it an ultimate thing and the result has been a pretty bad thing in our lives. So today we're gonna listen in as King David, the author of this Psalm, he shares his process of choosing to place his worship onto the one true God instead of on counterfeit gods. So what we're gonna do, you're gonna see, we're gonna expose counterfeit gods for what they really are. I'm gonna give you a process by which you can see the ones that you are most likely uh, to go and worship yourself. And then we're gonna see the great promises, the great promises available to us when we direct our worship onto the one true God. That's actually the greatest part of this Psalm is that the bulk of it is David delivering the promises and the hopes of worshiping the one true God. All right, so we're gonna get into that. Here we go. Verse one, let's do it. David says, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, verse two, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. Now, right out of the gate, you see what he's doing? He's, he's describing a decision that he's made. I'm gonna put my refuge in you. This whole psalm, it's David expressing the process of, of choosing to direct his worship onto the one true God. And refuge means exactly what you think it means. It's a hiding place for those who are in trouble. It's a shelter, right? You come in and you take shelter from the things around you. And then he says what sounds like exaggeration, but it's actually the result of what comes when you know God for a little while. He says, I have nothing good besides you. And you're like, really, David? I mean, you're the king. Being a king has got to have some perks. It's got to, like, I don't know, free camel rides. I don't know what it would be at that time, but there's got to be some pretty good perks for being the king. Are you serious? And so we look at that and we go, that's got to just be, that must be poetic, silly, overspeak. Like if you have ever had the good fortune of having um, Courtney Shelton, my wife, Courtney Shelton's homemade chocolate chess pie. Listen, that, that, that is, is a mm moment right there because I get, I get y'all, I, I'll get that. And when I'm in the middle of eating maybe just one small slice, I certainly wouldn't eat half of it at one time. That'd be crazy to do that. So I eat this one small slice and I may whisper to it, I have nothing good in my life besides you right now, because <laughs> it's so good in that moment. Now, is that true? No, it's momentary bliss, right? And we can think, oh, that must be what David is doing, just this momentary thing where he's exaggerating. But David's not over speaking. 
Instead, he is providing the most honest and true perspective on what it means to know God. In fact, Jesus says the same basic idea over Luke 14. He said, if anyone comes to me and he doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. What? And honestly, we struggle with what to do with those kind of verses. Now, look, Jesus isn't saying hate, like be the enemy of your brothers and your sisters and mothers. That'd be counter to his teaching in other places. David, in our next verse, is gonna talk about the good that he has that the Lord has given him in terms of other people. He's saying the one who loves God will get to a place where in comparison, in comparison to your love for Jesus, to your love for God, your feelings towards those others would be like hate. This is what happens when you know God. David had experienced God's faithfulness while protecting his sheep in the pasture. He'd experienced God's faithfulness, God's friendship through his close friendship with Jonathan. Through the time he killed Goliath, he saw God's faithfulness. To his ascent to the throne, he saw God's faithfulness. He knows God. And in comparison to God, nothing else is good. That right there is the first thing and, and a crucial thing to what we need to know about understanding these things that we're gonna call counterfeit gods. Listen to me. Nothing is good when compared to God. Nothing is good when compared to God. This is huge. Because see, what happens so often is that God does give us good things. He gives us good things. James 1 tells us that every good gift we have comes down from the Father above. He gives us good things. And when we keep it in a place where it is a gift, from God. It's a really good thing. But then over time, what happens is we start to find our happiness, find our security, find our our comfort in those good gifts. And and a shift happens where we're finding the things, we're starting to move our worship from the giver to the gift. And listen, when that gift moves like that in our hearts, from being one of God's gifts to being one of God's competitors, that's when it becomes a counterfeit God. A counterfeit God so often is something that was one of God's gifts that moves in our hearts to being one of God's competitors in our lives. I'm gonna show you in a second how we do it, but what David's doing right here is he's showing kind of like how we prevent ourselves, it's prevent defense, how we prevent ourselves from traveling down this road. Because David's saying, look, this is what's so awesome about having my worship placed on the one true God. And this is why I want to avoid false gods, counterfeit gods. And he says, nothing else is good, period. Look at verse three. Verse three, he says, as for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight, it's in them. He's talking about others who choose God the way he has. His delight is in them because there is a deep common bond that he shares with them. And listen, a huge, huge blessing to you as you seek to go through this process this month and and forevermore with your life, a huge blessing to you in this process of knowing God are other people who are in that same pursuit. In fact, God has wired you so that you are to experience his character mostly through other people. You catch this, look, I'll give you an example. Um, in my community group, there's a, a, a guy named Craig Bender who's become a good friend of mine. And I experience the faithfulness of God through my friendship with Craig Bender. 
A great example, just this past fall, my family was at soccer practice and all six of us were there and my keys got locked in the car. And by that, I mean, I left my keys in the front seat. I shut the door, the car was locked. And so there was dad at dinner time with, all the, with everybody locked out of the car, right? And so I happened to have my phone on me. So we walk over to a, a local restaurant and I'm sitting there, I was like, all right, we'll just get some food. And while we're doing that, I'm gonna text some people. I'm trying to call AAA, everything else. And one of the, I texted our group of guys said, hey, pray for me. My kids are hungry. My wife is less than happy with the situation that we're in right now. So pray for me. And next thing I know, Craig calls me and he's just, he's at my car. And he says, hey, where are you? I'm like, are you kidding? And so Craig happens to know how to break into a car. And we don't need to get into that right now, okay? But Craig helps me and he and I together break into my car, get my keys, save me the money that would have come from AAA, and I'm on my way. And I'm like, that's the faithfulness of a friend that I didn't ask him to come. He just came. He's faithful. And he's done that so many times in my life. Look, that's, a, that's me experiencing the character of God through Craig. Good friends are the ones that you can carjack with. No, that's not the takeaway for this, all right? Good friends are ones that you can see the character of God through. Listen, God's people keep you from counterfeit gods by pointing you to the one true God. David delights in them because he experiences God, the God who's working through them. If you want to know God, God says, okay, then get to know my son, get to know my word, and get to know my people. We don't just tell you to get into community here so that our programs can fill up with people. We do it because your heart is a factory for making counterfeit gods. And God's people are the ones who can look at you and say, whoa, man, hang on. You've turned that good thing into a God thing. That's a bad thing. I think I've told you before, I, had a, I got an email a few years back and this girl said, listen, I got a new community group. I want you to know how it saved my life. I was like, okay, is this overspeaking? And she says, I was engaged in a relationship that became a romantic relationship with a guy who was married. He moved to Japan and he calls me and he says, I want you to come with me to Japan. I knew the relationship was wrong, but I felt like this is the guy I'm gonna spend my life with. And so I was just like, I'm gonna go for it. And her community group kept saying, no, 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 you can't do this. Whoa, you've turned something into a God. You know, this is not who you are. What's going on here? And she said, uh, she said she just kept pushing them off. She was gonna go. She was giving herself entirely to this idol of a relationship. And she said her, two, of the, or two of her closest friends in that community group came over to her house the night she was packing and they said, you gotta stop. She said, no. They said, fine. They stole her passport and left and said, you're staying here. And she's sending me an email about a month later, so thankful that she had friends who helped her point out the counterfeit gods in her heart. Listen, some of you need to get some people that are willing to steal your passport for God's glory in your life. Look, let's get into verse four. This is where it's gonna get just one I wanna sit down in for a second. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I will not speak their names with my lips. David's saying, I'm not gonna worship them. Y'all, at first half of verse four, I've been in all week because the truth is so, so heavy, so sobering. We will all take a God, like I said, and those who take any God other than the one true God will experience sorrow, great sorrow, sorrow that will only multiply itself the longer that you worship that God. Another word for these counterfeit gods that the Bible uses often is the word idol. 
You may remember the famous commandment, Exodus 20, uh, four and five, right there, the 10 commandments. God says, don't make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or in the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down and worship them. Don't serve them. And you hear that and you think, well, of course not. I'm not gonna fashion a little wooden statue in the shape of anything in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth. And so we write that off as make sure that you don't fall into a religion that worships little statues. Got it. And we use that, we use that little mental exercise to push aside the reality that our heart is an idol factory. Ezekiel 14, God looks at the elders of Israel. These are the leaders of God's people and says, you have set up idols in your hearts. In your hearts. The leaders of God's people have figured out things to serve as counterfeit gods for them. A counterfeit God is not just a statue. God was revealing to them that they can take anything, usually a good gift from God, and turn it into his competitor. And we do it too. We look to good things like love, like a successful career, a family, and we turn them into ultimate things. And when we start to find our stability, our fulfillment, our sense of safety in these things, we have deified them. Listen, I'll give you a working definition for a counterfeit God. It's pretty simple. A counterfeit God is anything more important to you than God. Plain and simple. It's the thing or things that you have made so central to your life that should you lose it, you'll feel like your life will just fall apart. Whatever you look at and you say down in your heart, in those heart of hearts, if I have that, I'm good. As long as I have that, I have meaning. I know I'll be secure. I know I have value. And we can do that with anything. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you three questions that's kind of like a, an assessment to help you evaluate your, yourself, evaluate your heart, to see what counterfeit gods you might be giving your worship to. This is, these three questions are ones that you're going to need to spend some time on. They're ones that you're going to need to talk about in community group together and get real with some people about. Here's the first one. We'll call this discovering your idols. Here's this process. The first one, what do you love? What do you love? See, one of the ways God talks about our relationship to him is that he is, he's like our spouse. I mean, that's the language in scripture. God should be our one true spouse, but when we delight in other things, when we desire other things above God, the Bible uses the language of calling that adultery. See, idols will capture our imagination. And here's how you can locate them. Look at what you daydream about. What do you dream about? What do you hope for? Because idols make us feel loved, make us feel significant. Look, I'll give you an example. A lot of people love love. They love romance, right? There's this old Dean Martin song that's been covered, I don't know how many times. It says, you're nobody till somebody loves you. Right, you're nobody till somebody cares. That's a, it has a nice melody. It's a huge lie, right? But our culture has bought it. So we maintain that one day we will find our soulmate. And when we find our soulmate, we find that person, we will unload onto them all of our deepest needs for significance and meaning and purpose and love and fulfillment and security. And nobody can live up to that. Nobody can live up to that. So what happens? You get into that relationship. You dump all of that onto that person, all those expectations, all that weight. They can't carry it. And so your sorrows multiply. Just like David said in verse four. Because you didn't realize it, but you made that person your God. 
the dating scene is filled with the God of love, especially the Christian dating scene. Romantic love is powerful, and on its own, it's a good thing that God has given us, right? But we make it a God one of two ways. Some people just have to have it. You gotta have it, so you always need to be dating. You're always looking for the one, and so all of your actions are controlled by the power of romantic love. This need to be dating someone, to be with someone. But then there are others. Others avoid romantic love entirely. Maybe it's out of bitterness. Maybe it's out of anger. Maybe it's out of fear. And avoiding it, pushing it off, you are actually just as controlled by the power of the God of love as those who are consumed by going to get it. See, both of you, both groups, I should say, they, they're controlled by its power. The person who is completely shut off to love, it, what happens is you might actually miss someone who comes along that could be a great potential spouse. And then the person who must have love, almost always have seen it too many times, will rush headlong into a relationship with someone they were never meant to, should never have been with. If you're too afraid to love or too enamored by love, it is assumed God-like power that makes it a counterfeit God. That's just one example. Let me give you another question to figuring out your idols, discovering your idols. What do you trust? What do you love? What do you trust? Another way the Bible talks about God, it's like what David says in verse one, that God is his refuge, his savior and security. But idols will slip into that spot and demand our trust. And with that, they become the ones in charge of our sense of peace and security, and you want to know the way to uncover these idols, don't look at your daydreams, look at your nightmares. Look at your nightmares. What do you fear losing the most? And if you lost it, do you feel like life would just crumble all around you? I mean, the obvious example here has got to be money. You know the Bible talks a lot about money, right? Like way more than it talks about any other particular subject. Why? Because it's so powerful and it's so seductive. You know, only 2% of Americans consider themselves to be in the upper class. Whatever that may be, just when the, when the question is asked, upper class, only 2%. Yet, if you make more than $32,400 in a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the entire world. See, we, we figure out a way so often to fool ourselves and we think, well, we're just around others. I need to just be just a little bit better off than those around me. I need just a little bit more. Right? I've never once, never once had someone come into my office, sit down and say, Spence, I think I'm spending too much money on myself. I think my greed is hurting me. I think it's hurting my family. I think it might be destroying my soul. I've never had it. That's because greed the love of money hides in secret and it blinds us to its work. But man, do we trust it. Man, do we trust it. I think about me. Y'all, I went through a period, this was definitely true of me. I went through a period where I would check my bank account online six times a day. It wasn't changing, right? I don't know, I didn't need to check it six times a day to see what was going on. I was checking it because money was my security. It was an idol and the deeper idol that money was helping me serve was actually control. It was control. 
I felt like as long as I have a positive balance in my checking account, as long as that balance is continuing to grow, then I'm okay. And then I got into seminary and that kind of wrecked all of that for a few years, right? But that's how savers make idols out of money. It helps us control our lives. Spenders do it too though. They use money to get stuff which makes them feel good about themselves, better clothes, better house, better whatever. And usually in God's humor, spenders and savers marry each other and that's where all the conflict comes from, right? I know this is a hard question, but where are you putting your trust? What's your security blanket? What's your safety net? What's your refuge? When something starts to take that spot, it is moving from being a gift of God to being a competitor of God. You'll never know God. You'll never know, listen to me. This is why it's so important. You'll never know God the way that you were meant to know him as long as you are trusting in something else. Here's the last one, last question. What do you obey? What do you love? What do you trust? What do you obey? See, these are the things that are meant to be directed towards. This is worship language. What do you obey? The Bible calls God our master and our king. He is our authority that we are to submit to. And truthfully, this is probably the hardest out of all of the, all of the different things here, the different ways God relates to us as him being an authority because we live in an individualistic age. And in that age, we celebrate autonomy where nobody is our authority. We think we're independent beings, but we're not. We all are servants of some God. And God has created us so that we will flourish when we are submitted to him but we often take that authority off of God and we put it on something else. And anything that becomes more important to us, more non-negotiable to us than God, has taken the place as God in our lives. You wanna know what you're obeying? Look at what controls your emotions. What causes you to, to become uncontrollably angry or anxious or despondent? What racks you with guilt that you just can't shake? That's your counterfeit God multiplying your sorrows. I see this a lot, a lot. Just give you an example with the idol of success. More than even money, the idol, it's just the idol of being, of being the youngest, brightest, most talented person in your field. We even train it into our kids, right? We train them to win. I've told you before, the Shelton motto growing up in my house was Shelton's win. Right? I mean, even my dad out on our little um, driveway basketball court would never let me win. He's not gonna let me win. I gotta earn that win, right? And so here's six foot three, 210 pound Don Shelton backing down four foot eight, 11 year old, weighing nothing, Spence Shelton, his firstborn son. And he's backing me down in the post. And I'm like, come on, dad, have mercy on me. And dad's like, Jesus gives mercy. I give lessons, <laughs> right? School me. I'm like, this is. This is, uh, this is just a little therapy session for me. No, this is what happens. We just, we breed it into ourselves that we've got to win. We've got to succeed in life. It's the American dream to pull ourselves up and succeed. But that leads people to all kinds of dark places, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. How many stories of athletes, professional athletes, do we need to hear? Not even professional athletes college and high school athletes, do we need to hear who will sacrifice everything in order to win? 
in order to succeed, in order to hear the roar of the crowd. So they use performance-enhancing drugs, for example, which will tear their bodies apart eventually, but it's worth it to serve the God of success. Happens in every field. You can probably think of how it happens in your field, your profession. I know it happens, transparent moment. I know it happens in the field of pastoral ministry. I know that because guys get into the ministry to be shepherds of God's people. But then something shifts. And a good thing, which, become, which God's people that they shepherd, the flock, if you want to call it that, all of a sudden, actually, it's, it's kind of over time, they feel like they, they have to grow that flock. The numbers have to increase. And over time, they can be consumed by success and thinking of success in terms of numbers. So if the congregation grows, then they are okay. And if the congregation doesn't grow, then they're not okay. And they wake up one day and they're bitter. Their families hate ministry because they've watched the guy who's supposed to be leading the family give himself entirely to ministry and not to them. Their friends are far from them, are far from him. And what's happened, he, he looks in the mirror and he sees a monster when he was supposed to be a shepherd. He's not the monster. He has given himself to the monster, to the monster of success. I have to have it, have to have it. It promises fulfillment and delivers sorrows. And that's regardless of whether the church is large or small. And that's just in ministry. What do you trust? What do you love? What do you obey? The most common barrier to people growing closer to God, to knowing God, is their failure to recognize the counterfeit gods that are competing with the one true God for their love. Almost always, always, I can tie major breakthroughs in people's spiritual lives and in my own life to the time where they finally called out those counterfeit gods and chose to shift their worship back on the one true God. And that leads to the rest of our psalm where David shows us the blessing of worshiping the one true God. Verse five, Lord, you are my portion, my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The future is, of course, our greatest source of anxiety, right? Fear of what's gonna happen. False gods reveal themselves in your anxiety. But when you put your hope in the one true God, you say, you got it. You hold my future. I trust in you. And so, verse six, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Think about what this word inheritance means for us. For us, it's not riches or land. In Christ, our inheritance is God himself. He purchased us. He purchased us. He paid for our sin. He adopts us into his kingdom. He puts the label on you of son or daughter. And he says, I'm gonna give you my presence now in the form of the Holy Spirit. And one day you and I will dwell together forever in my kingdom. No other God can say that. And the more we fix our eyes on eternity and the inheritance that awaits us, the more the present allure of false idols the more that starts to fall away. This is why you hear us say a lot around here, the best thing for your walk with God, it's not just running away from false gods, but running towards the one true God. It's not just seeing the worthlessness of your gods, it's seeing the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord. The sermon I'm referenced probably more than any other here 
is it's got to be that simple sermon by Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, where he says the problem with a lot of religion is that all it does is tell us to stop worshiping false gods, stop sinning. But all that does is create momentary guilt. It doesn't last because our desires are just ultimately more powerful than guilt. He says the best thing for breaking the power of counterfeit gods is giving more of yourself to the one true God. The more you give your worship to God, that action will actually diminish your desire for false gods. We'll find joy in him. We'll want more of him. And the best news is there is no end to that joy. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. In short, if you evaluate yourself today and you see that you're worshiping counterfeit gods, the first priority, your first step, run as hard and as fast as you can towards Jesus. Run to him, abide in him, he says. And then in his power, in his refuge, with his covering, then you can begin to untangle how those counterfeit gods have gotten into your life. Verse seven, I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Listen to this, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. They spoke to me this week. Anybody else ever had thoughts trouble them at night? Anybody else ever have trouble going to sleep because your mind is racing? You wake up in the middle of the night because of fears, anxieties, decisions, conflict that are troubling you. David says in that moment, I'm gonna bless the Lord, which means in the moment where fear wants to reign, I'm gonna choose to say, Lord, my life is yours. You prepare a place for me, even in the presence of my enemies. Surely, though I don't know how, though I don't know when, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's gonna happen. That's a promise of his. At night, all alone, just you and your thoughts. David says, no, 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 it's not just you and your thoughts. There's God as well. God's there. And you have the difficult but real option to surrender even your thoughts to the Lord and replace them with his counsel, his truth. And no idol will be able to hold its grip over you when you start attacking it with God's truth. Leading right to verse eight. I always let the Lord guide me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now he's talking about life in victory over those idols. Over whatever might come. He's with me. He's my advocate. When my worship, my security, my love, trust, obedience is set on the one true God, I can't be shaken. Another word here for shaken, it's moved. God has me. He's my refuge. He's not letting me go. So when the storms come, I find shelter. I find strength there. Verse nine, therefore, my heart's glad. My whole being rejoices. My body even rests securely. Look at that promise. This is the outcome of worshiping the one true God. Not anxiety, not fear, not stress, not anger. No, it's gladness, joy, and rest. My body rests securely. Quick, look, how many of you are in need of rest? You're just tired. Maybe you're worn out in your soul. You know what I've actually started doing in response to this psalm? I've been reading this for, uh, just for a while in prep. Um, I've started sleeping eight hours a night. Simple thing, such a simple thing. Eight hours, and my body, I used to be a six-hour guy. My body feels so much better. You know why? I'm just, I'm trying to do what David does here and say, I, I trust you. I trust you, Lord. And my body is gonna rest securely because the Lord has me. My family, my job, our church, it's under his care. It's under his care. Leads right to the last two, more promises, verses 10 and 11. You will not abandon me 
to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. We're gonna come back to verse 10 in just a second. Verse 11, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Verse 11 is the beautiful culmination of the psalm of the truth that when I choose to direct my worship to God, when I choose to love and trust and obey him, when I believe the gospel, receive God's forgiveness, believe that he rose for me, I stand in his presence and there I find joy, I find life, I find pleasure. That's the pursuit that we're all on as humans. And there it is. Eternal pleasure, abundant joy in the presence of God. And that presence can be here and now for you. And it is the promise that he's here now for every Christian. Now, what I wanna do with the last couple moments is show you the deeper meaning of this psalm. See, what's beautiful, there's this reality about the entire Old Testament. You can meet God here, see his character here, but you are not the main character of the Old Testament. What we're gonna see is that Jesus is the main character of the Old Testament. And all of the stories of the Old Testament, even the Psalms and the prophecies, even the laws, they're all pointing to a coming Messiah, to Jesus. I wanna show you in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, Peter, this is Peter preaching to all this, this huge crowd around him. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter two. Starting in verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. And though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, and then Peter quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow, this is from verse 10 of Psalm 16, or allow your Holy One to see decay. You reveal the paths of life to me. You fill me with gladness in your presence. And so then he says in verse 29, he preaches Psalm 16. And he preaches how we're supposed to respond to it. This is awesome. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Go ahead to verse 31. Seeing what was to come, David spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. The Messiah was not abandoned in Hades. The Messiah's flesh did not experience decay. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus. We're all witnesses of this. Down to verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Psalm 16 is about Jesus, the one true God. His name is Jesus and all other gods are counterfeit. They fought for your love. They have fought for your trust. They have fought for your obedience. They promise security and all they deliver is anxiety. They promise control. They deliver chaos. They promise prosperity, they deliver destruction. They consume you, they leave you wrung out like a wet rag, but not Jesus. God lifted him out of the grave. And right there is the question for us. Did 
Jesus rise from the grave. Now, the Bible is going to tell us, the Apostle Paul is going to say there are 500 eyewitnesses. There are multiple gospel accounts written independently of each other that testify to Jesus coming out of the grave. There is all the proof that you need. But if he rose, he is God. There is no other. He is the one true God. And the people around Peter hear that. In verse 37, they say, what should we do? It actually says they were cut to the heart, pierced to the heart. The truth went right down in there. What must we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Psalm 16 is a call for you to turn from counterfeit gods. And when you come to God, here's the beautiful thing. You will not find judgment. Because you see, your judgment that was owed your sin was put on to Jesus. And you will also not find death because God raised this Jesus, defeating death, which means you get life with him forevermore. He is your covering. He is your refuge. You are now in Christ. And when God looks at you, he sees Christ and he calls you beloved. He calls you son or daughter and he opens his arms and he says, come back to me. Come back to the one true God that you were always created for. See, the response to this for the Christian when Peter says, repent and be baptized, the response for you, Christian, is to repent from where, as you look at those questions, what have you come to love? What have you come to trust? What have you come to obey? What are the things that are slipping in there and fighting for your allegiance to God? It's to repent. And where Peter says, be baptized for you is to look back on your baptism and remember that you didn't do anything to earn God's love. In that baptism, you were buried in Christ's death for your sins. And then you were raised to walk in new life because Christ got out of the grave and so you have new life. And so Christian, the way to free yourself from those idols that have been creeping in is just to run hard back into that love of God for you and to rest in it, abide in it, worship him. And if you're not a Christian, your response is simply what Peter said, repent and be baptized. And the reason we say, the reason he says be baptized is because that is the public profession that you are believing Repent, turn away from those counterfeit gods that aren't serving you, that are giving you nothing but destruction. And believe, believe that Christ, he died for your sin where you were running after counterfeit gods. And he rose from the grave, giving you, when you believe that what he's done is for you, giving you new life in him. Let me pray for you. I want you to bow your head, close your eyes. Briefly do business with God. Let me lead you in this. What do you love? What do you trust? What do you obey? In your heart and mind, call it out to God. You know what it is. There may be some longer soul searching that needs to be done, but there are some things I bet you know. Give them over to him. You will not find condemnation you will find love, true love. For those of you that worship success, it's an old hymn. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand now in him, and him alone, gloriously complete. The gospel says you have everything that you need in Christ. 
and his love for you is stronger than any counterfeit God. It will sustain you. If you're not a Christian, I implore you today, now, right here, right now, today is the day of your salvation. Tell him, tell the Lord, I'm, I'm done. I'm turning to repent is to turn away from counterfeit gods. Maybe even that counterfeit God is yourself, that you are in charge of you and nobody else. And you're realizing that that has not worked out. And today, you, you, as you turn, what you see is the arms of a loving father open, ready to receive you. He says, come home. You don't find condemnation. You find a loving embrace. I believe that Jesus died for my sins so that I can have that relationship with God. And I receive that love today. God, we love you. We thank you that even when our hearts wander away, you still come after us. You are patient with us and you love us and your love is greater than anything else. I pray that we would grab hold of that. Let mercy be a people consumed by the incredible love of God for us. We pray that in Christ's holy name, amen.